Well, the conditions for Christians are challenging. Immorality is not just tolerated, but it's celebrated at all levels of society. Idolatry, in many forms, is widespread. Religious pluralism is the status quo. The exclusive claims of Christians are hated. There are wars and unrest in the Middle East, in the lands that we read of in the Bible. The leader of the world's greatest military power is an unpredictable narcissist who craves popularity with the masses and whose personal morality is far from exemplary. Meanwhile, the Britons have risen up recently to declare that they want to rule themselves, that they don't want to be part of some great united Europe. However, despite all this, the church is growing in places where the gospel hasn't been heard before. And many first-generation Christians are having to work out what it means to live as Christians in an at times hostile world. But I'm not talking about life for Christians in the 21st century. But rather for those in the mid-first century, living in the Roman Empire under Nero, because that is the context in which today's passage was written. In many ways, for us, things are similar. I intentionally made that introduction ambiguous. And yet, there are so many things that are so different. Whereas our government is essentially benign, if not always wise, theirs was ruled by a powerful dictator backed up by a powerful army. Whereas we can vote our government out every few years if we don't like them, their dissension was likely to involve a public, painful and humiliating death. Whereas the worst persecution we are likely to experience is essentially psychological, real though that may be, for them, again, it might well involve a painful death. And it's into those circumstances that Paul writes his instructions for Titus to teach the Christians in Crete how to respond. And his instructions are possibly quite surprising. They're maybe not what we would have written if we were thinking, how should you live in that situation? So let's read the passage together and see what he has to say through Titus to the Cretans and indirectly to us here today in 21st century Edinburgh. It's Titus chapter 3 and starting at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and is sinful. He is self-condemned. Quite challenging words there. For those of you who like such things, I have four main headings. For those who don't care about such things, ignore them. Firstly, challenging circumstances. Secondly, radical responses. Thirdly, magnificent motivation. And finally, divisive distractions. So, having already covered the first point, the challenging circumstances, let's move straight on to see the radical responses that Paul instructs. Let's read again that first couple of verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In the circumstances they live in, he tells them to essentially do two things. Submit and do good. And it was important for us to remind ourselves at the beginning the context this was written in. This is not written to people living under a good, righteous, Christian government. And yet Paul doesn't tell them to resist. He doesn't tell them to subvert, to protest. But rather he tells them to submit, to obey, and to get on with doing good. Paul expands on this idea in a much fuller passage in Romans 13, where he says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It seems that there was rising rebellion among the Jews at the time who were seeking to free themselves from the shackles of the Roman Empire. And it's probable that this movement was being encouraged by some of the teachers within the church. And yet Paul teaches them to act completely differently. But this isn't just a one-off passage. We see there have been a similar situation before. Most of us know the well-known verses in Jeremiah 29, where God declares that he knows the plans he has for us. 
And yet, the context that they were written in, they were written to the Jews in exile in pagan Babylon. And there have been false prophets telling them that it's okay, they'll be going home soon, everything's fine. But God instead delivers the message that no, they'll be there for a long time, a lifetime. Very few of those who were taken there will ever see Israel again. And yet, what they're told to do there is build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may be your sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. They're not just to grin and bear it. Instead, they're to actively seek the welfare of Babylon, the enemy, the pagan empire that has sacked Jerusalem and destroyed its temple. But of course, our prime example of how to live under oppression must be Jesus himself. In particular, how he acted in the time around his arrest and when he was before Pilate. We were reminded recently in our small group of the verses in Isaiah 53 that under oppression, he didn't resist. He didn't protest. He went quietly. But yet at the same time, he so clearly wasn't a doormat. It was very clear, even in his humiliation, who was in control. Because he rebukes his disciples when they try to fight and prevent his arrest. When he says, do you think I cannot call in to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Or to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. You see, the first reason they are not to fight is because God has everything under control. He has all the power that he needs and he knows what he's doing. And the second is because his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. And as such, it cannot be defeated, nor can it be victorious by earthly means. As Paul will later teach the Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual. The weapons we must use are also spiritual. And as he would go on to remind Pilate, Pilate or any other earthly ruler has no power unless it's given to him from above. God is still on the throne. But like most New Testament practical teaching, it isn't quite that simple. Because there are always exceptions. There are always times when one instruction will trump another. Because in fact, we see there's quite a history of civil disobedience in the Bible. 
first case we probably read of is the Hebrew midwives in Egypt, back in Exodus chapter 1, where Pharaoh has commanded that they kill any baby boys born to the Hebrews. But it says, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Then midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So we read here that the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh because they feared God. More than that, they lied to Pharaoh about what was going on. And rather than being condemned by God, they're praised and rewarded by God. Both by making the people even more numerous and by giving the midwives themselves families of their own. Another key example we get is Daniel. He was one of those Israelites that was taken into exile. An old children's song says, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. And we think of those famous situations where Daniel did indeed stand alone. Particularly when he refused to stop praying, was thrown into the den of lions, and how God miraculously rescued him from there. But before we start taking Daniel as a role model, um, for how to stand up against oppressive authorities, and he is that, we need to look at the rest of Daniel's life. As a godly young Jew, he and his friends were taken into Nebuchadnezzar's palace to be educated and trained in the language and literature of the Babylonians. And rather than refusing to learn this pagan teaching, Instead, God gave them knowledge and understanding so that when tested, they were found to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. In fact, he did so well that a few chapters later we find him as chief of the magicians. Surely a strange job for a good Jewish man. And later, under Darius, he has become a much-respected administrator that Darius planned to put over the whole kingdom. And what's interesting here is that Daniel's not just grudgingly doing the minimum he can get away with to escape Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. Instead, he's actively advancing. He's getting involved in the running of this great, powerful pagan empire doing the best he can to seek the welfare of the city into which he's been sent. And it's against this background that he, on a few occasions, draws a line in the sand and says no further. 
And I think we can see here essentially where the boundary lies. We're told to submit and to obey the authorities that God has put in place right up to the point where obedience to them is disobedience to God. And then we are called to dare to be a Daniel. To, like the apostles, declare that we must obey God rather than men. But they're not just told to obey, not just told to submit, but they're also told to be ready for every good work. We're not called to rebel. We're not called to resist, but we're called to be active in good works. We're not to keep ourselves to ourselves in some holy huddle, but rather we're to get involved and get our hands dirty in all the brokenness of the groaning world that we live in. What that means to each of us will be very different. I've just heard a bit about what it means to Andy and Emma in their lives. Each of us will have different circumstances that we live in. But as evangelicals, we tend to seek to avoid two errors regarding good works. Firstly, that our good works can in some way make us righteous. They can balance out the wrong. They can make us acceptable to God. And secondly, that our mission is to transform the world by our good works, that here we can make all things new. And as we resist those arguments, very often I think we fall into the error of acting as if good works are some sort of optional extra. That the Christian life is basically a matter of trying our best to avoid blatant sin, striving to have good quiet times, getting involved in church things, and maybe if we have some time left over, we might think about what else we can get involved in. Certainly, I think I fall into that trap. And even by that definition, I fail pretty comprehensively. But I think here from what Paul is saying, we see that we're called to something far more active. I think it's important for us to consider here that good works are not instructed here as a means to an end. But because they are by definition good and in and of themselves, we should not need any ulterior motive to do them. I'm not saying for a moment that if opportunities arise to give more than practical help, we should not take them. Not even that we should not be seeking to find those opportunities. But that our motivation to, for example, feed the hungry should be, they are hungry, we have food. Our motivation to share the gospel is, they are lost, we have hope. I don't think we need to get the two confused. We need to do both. But here we are being called to do good works in our society 
because good works are good. And yet our works may well open up opportunities. There's an interesting response to the good works of the Christians that comes from a pagan Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate. This was at the time following Constantine when the empire was going back and forwards between being Christian and being pagan, and this was one of the pagan emperors. And he complains, Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness, as he calls it, of their lives, that have done most to increase atheism, i.e. unbelief in the pagan gods. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, as he called the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Surely there must be some impact when Christians are doing so much good in the world that a pagan emperor is embarrassed. But the key thing to realise here is that what we are called to do should be a natural outflowing of the work of the Spirit within us. It's not something distinct and separate. As Paul writes to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. All Paul is teaching here in Titus is that this fruit should not just be displayed inside our churches, in our families, in our private interactions, but should be displayed as we live in the world around us. But before moving on to next main section, I just want to bring up a few areas of application and for most of these I don't want to give any answers. If anything, I want to raise questions. The one thing they should make clear is that in every situation we must work out for ourselves where that line in the sand lies. Where the boundary is between obeying man and obeying God. I'm happy to discuss my thoughts on these issues off the platform. But where the Bible gives no clear teaching, I don't want to claim that my speculation has any authority. So for us, unlike the situation that the midwives, Daniel, Paul, Titus, the Cretans lived in, we are governed by a parliamentary democracy, which means our interactions with the government are very different. So they raise a different set of questions, and yet the issues are essentially the same. The first question is, should we vote? And how should we vote? Should we be getting involved in choosing a government when ultimately it's God who raises up and takes down governments? Is this a situation of a soldier getting involved in civilian affairs? Or in our government setup, is this part of what it means to live peaceably under the authorities? To submit, to obey, to do good, to carry out our civic duty? And if we should vote, 
what issues should be top of our list as we consider who to vote for? Is it the questions of morality, of foreign policy, of how the most disadvantaged in our society are helped? Or what about should Christians be involved in protest? Should we be marching or standing outside Parliament with placards about the issues that we care about? Is this resisting the authorities put in place by God? Or is this part of the privileges of living in a modern democracy where we have the opportunity to make our voice heard? Should we be getting involved in challenging the government in the courts? Should we be getting involved with groups such as the Christian Institute that stand up for Christian moral values? I don't know. How should we respond to illegal immigrants and failed asylum seekers living among us? Should we be accepting the government decisions? Or should we be willing at times to break the law and shelter those who need our help? Possibly especially our Christian brothers and sisters who may face real persecution if they are sent back to their home countries. But of course, while the issues we have to deal with today are real, there are those that arise living in peace. But not all Christians today live in that situation. And there's no guarantee that we always will. There are Christians living today under authorities that are probably at least as brutal as those pagan ancient empires. North Korea, under the Islamic State, and many other oppressive regimes. But, as has to be done, I will invoke Godwin's law, that all discussions eventually get to Hitler. So, How would we respond to Hitler if he was today? I think there's five key ways that Christians did respond at the time. The first response was that of many of the mainstream churches in Germany who quietly submitted. Some came to an agreement with the Nazis that they would not get involved in politics if the Nazis stayed out of religion. Didn't quite work, but that was the agreement they came to. The second response was of those like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who got involved with the German resistance movement, ultimately with the plot to assassinate Hitler. And he was executed for his involvement in that. The third response was that of many like the Ten Boom family in occupied Amsterdam who were involved in the Dutch underground movement there that sheltered Jews in hidden rooms in their houses. It's believed that at one point there were up to 300,000 people hidden in the Netherlands during that occupation. The Ten Booms ultimately ended up in a concentration camp and it was only due to a clerical error that Corrie Ten Boom escaped the gas chambers and was released to tell her story. 
The fourth response is that of many Christians living in Britain who, when called up to serve, willingly obeyed the orders of their government and went to fight and die for their country. And then the fifth and final response was of those who did not consider fighting compatible with their Christian faith and conscientiously objected. I have my thoughts about which of those I think were some of the best decisions and I may have betrayed them a bit with my words. But the important thing is all of these people made different decisions but all of them were trying to serve God in the situation they found themselves in. The issue is not were they right or wrong. The issue is what will we do? But why should we care about this? Why should we be doing all this, going out of our way, living potentially difficult lives? Paul actually uses most of his words in this passage. And it's okay, I'm not going to use most of mine. To detail the magnificent motivation that the people must have. While essentially Titus is a letter of practical teaching, Paul never separates practice from doctrine. Instead, one always flows out of the other. If he was just teaching good works on their own, this would be pure moralism, but without any reason to care what he says or any power to be able to follow it. He seems to use two types of arguments through Titus. There's the first type that's the, if you do this, then this will happen. And the second one is, because of this, do this. Hope that makes sense. But in in the first half of chapter 2, we saw various reasons of the first kind given. In verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. All of these talk about the effects that the people's lifestyle will have on the people around them. How it will affect people's attitude to the word of God. But in the second half of the chapter that Mike brought us last week, there was a second type of argument. Here we read that because the grace of God has appeared in the past, and because you hope for the glory of God in the future, therefore live self-controlled, upright and godly lives now. Here in chapter 3, Paul uses a very similar argument. First, he reminds us what we were. In verse 3, he says, for we ourselves were. He describes what we were and essentially says that we were like those around us. Like those rulers and authorities. Like those false teachers. Like the cretins themselves. And it's not a pleasant description. We don't like to be described as foolish. 
we think we're quite wise, really. We can make fairly good decisions by ourselves. And we like to think that we have the power to carry out our decisions. And yet he tells us here that no. We couldn't even make wise decisions, but we were slaves to our passions. We were not just messed up, but we had absolutely no power to change. And that is exactly what the world around us is like and the people that rule over us. And so we cannot fix this groaning world just by preaching good living. The golden rule of love your neighbour as yourself would completely reform society if we weren't completely unable to carry it out. But then Paul reminds us of what has changed. That the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, has appeared. He has saved us by his mercy, not by our works. This is a very important thing for us to remember as we interact with the society around us. To remember that good works can ultimately never save us, nor our society. As Albert Moeller writes in the Gospel Coalition blog, the theological temptation of moralism is one many Christians and churches find it difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world. This, I think, is a particularly strong temptation if we are to take up Paul's exhortation to live a life of getting our hands dirty involvement in society. But Paul reminds us how it happened in us by regeneration, by being made new, and by ongoing renewal by the Holy Spirit, by a once and for all radical change, and by a continuous process of transformation, we have been and are being made new. We did not just try a little harder. We didn't pull our socks up and get our act together. And we mustn't imply to those around us that that is what's needed. And then he goes on to remind us of what we will be. That having been justified by his grace, we might be heirs to eternal life. That this work of transformation that has begun in us will be carried through to completion. That the kingdom of God, which we now live as citizens of, will finally be fully revealed. That the kingdoms of this earth will be brought to an end. That all will be made new. That all will be put right. That the groaning of this world will end. And that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. 
And so having reminded us of what we were, of what has been done for us, and what we will be, he then, in verse 9, I think it was, yes, he then exhorts us to devote ourselves to good works. We couldn't do this in the state we were in. And even if we could, doing it would never have changed us. But now that we have been redeemed, that we've been reborn, renewed, we must live out the new creation that is within us and which we look forward to in all its fullness. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we are sent as ambassadors into this fallen world. And then finally, having reminded us of the magnificent motivation we have, Paul warns against divisive distractions. He tells them to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments and quarrels about the law. Does he mean we should stop watching Who Do You Think You Are? That we should delete our subscriptions to Ancestry.com? Stop caring about whether our great-great-great-great-grandfather came from Ardrishig or Ireland? While that might at times be a distraction, I don't think that is what he's talking about. And unfortunately, I don't think it's terribly clear what he is talking about. The commentaries all seem to have slightly different ideas of, of what these arguments might be. It may be something to do with people claiming importance due to who either they were descended from or maybe who they'd been baptized by. You know, like, like the arguments at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you know, I, I'm, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, uh, I'm of Peter. And, you know, it, it could be that. They're saying, this is my heritage and that's greater than yours. Or maybe it has something more to do with some of the Jewish myths and controversies that now seem to be lost in the mists of time. But whatever exactly the arguments he's talking about, and I'm sure the arguments that we have now are probably very different ones, he contrasts them with the good works. The good works, he says, are excellent and profitable, whereas these are unprofitable and worthless. It's quite probable that they were arguments about what was right. The arguments that I was carefully trying to avoid earlier. Of the specific details that the Bible does not tell us. It may be that this was to do with the Jewish Mishnah and the oral traditions where layer after layer of commentary and interpretation is put on top of each other, each one interpreting and reinterpreting. And so you get, ah yes, Rabbi so-and-so said that Rabbi so-and-so um, said this about this commandment, and yet Rabbi so-and-so took a different view on it. He said that, and Paul's saying this is unprofitable. Worse than being unprofitable, it's useless distraction, and worse than that, it's divisive. 
But I think the main contrast we see here is the contrast between getting out there and being obedient or sitting inside and arguing about what obedience means. Francis Chan tells a story, a, I assume made-up story, of if he told his daughter to tidy her room. Then goes up a bit later to check on what she's doing. He wouldn't really be happy if his daughter was to say to him, yep, I've memorised exactly what you told me to do. I've been studying it word for word. In fact, I've arranged I'm going to meet up with some of my friends and we're going to discuss together what it might look like in our lives if we were to do this. No, clearly nonsense. What he wants is for her to get her act together and tidy her room. And so how are we going to respond? In light of the gospel, of who we were, of what has been done for us, of the glorious hope that we look forward to, are we going to have a nice chat after the service about how we might respond in hypothetical situations? Or are we going to get out there and look for the opportunities God has given us to get our hands dirty in the situations he has placed us in. That, I believe, is the challenge that we are given here.